In this first half of what turned into a two-part recording, I talk with Darren Philp, a man with whom I've shared a few beers over the years. We talk about his time working in the Treasury, which is where I first met him when he was working on a drawdown policy. We also talk about the pension dashboard and about the world of workplace pensions. With his experience in the public sector, with a trade body and now a commercial provider, Darren has an amazing breadth and depth of experience. If you're at all interested in pensions policy and politics, then you'll enjoy listening to him. recording cool. so uh darren welcome to the podcast hello tom obviously we've known each other for a while but can i ask you just to, to introduce yourself who you are where, where you work and, and how you got here yeah so i'm darren philp and i'm director of policy and market engagement at smart pension smart pension is a tech company and a master trust operating in the pension space and i've been there for three years before that i did a similar job at people's pension was also director of policy at the PLSA, Pensions and Lifetime Savings Associations, previously called NAPF. And before that, I did 13 years in the Treasury. The last years of the Treasury were as head of the pensions and pensioners team. So been doing pensions since 2007. Absolutely love it. And also have sort of seen it from various different angles. And it's great to be part of this podcast, Tom. Thank you for joining me. So you came into, just thinking, at Treasury, you came in just after pension simplification in 2006 then. 2007, so my first day at the Treasury as a team leader of what was the pensions and incomes and earnings team then was Alistair Darling's first day as Chancellor. So it was at that sort of point of transition between Darling and um, Brown. They were bit more excited about him than you? So it's, it's, uh, I think that would be a fair assessment. So I was struck by, I mean, a couple of things there. So first of all, you were there through the crazy times, right? Oh, oh by the way, did you watch the BBC Blair Brown documentary? It's on my sort of um, watch list. So I've seen it on, I've seen snippets of it. And I wanted to sort of watch it in its full glory right the way through, which I'm definitely going to do. But I didn't want to do it in sort of a piecemeal way. Yeah. So that's definitely one for, you know, when I've got a day off or something. Yeah, no, I, I binged it over probably a few days. But once it started, I was, you know, I was absolutely gripped because, I mean, I'm of an age where I kind of lived through that and saw it all firsthand. And I mean, I've been to... I've been to lunches with Alastair Darling since, not like just the two of us, but um, sort of roundtable sessions where he's talked about his time at the Treasury. And it was really interesting watching the Blair Brown stuff back again. I don't think anyone would really say Gordon Brown's tenure as Prime Minister was particularly successful, but he did save the world, you know, so there's that. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think prime ministers and politicians um, always have to deal with the circumstances that, you know, they're faced with. And um, if you if you if you just think about the US for a moment and the hope for change that they had when they elected Barack Obama, mm. who's an absolute great leader, but probably only delivered a fraction of what he could have otherwise have done because of the global financial crisis. Yeah. So I think quite often, you know, politicians are victims or, you know, they're, they're defined by the sort of external circumstances of what's going on around them. And, you know, you could sort of say that at the moment, really, about the current administration and COVID and um, Brexit and um, all, all of that type of stuff. You know, governments can come in with sort of fantastic ideas, big change programmes, big agendas and all of that type of stuff. 
but you know, do the plans sort of survive the first pass of battle? Mm. Um, quite often not. Very true. And um, it's easy to forget, you know, election December 2019, Boris comes in, get Brexit done. Four months later, everything goes to hell in a handcart. You know, and that's exactly, that. Yeah. And that's yeah. what's going to define his, certainly this first term, if you, if you assume he gets another one. But, you know, this period of his premiership is is just like, it's all COVID, isn't it? It's not the sunlit uplands of the, the post-Brexit world that he envisaged. If some of those sunlit uplands ever existed, Tom, well, that's probably a different podcast. <laughs> I've only once been in the same room as Gordon Brown, and I really warmed to him in person in a way that I never did when I saw him on television. I think right, he, he yeah. always felt kind of slightly wooden on television. And then you kind of met him in person. And, you know, I really got it. He's a good guy. He's genuine. He's passionate. He's much warmer and more emotional than I'd anticipated because that's not what I ever saw of him on television. Yeah, so I was, um, obviously, I, I, I was at the Treasury for 13 years at a variety of different roles and a variety of different levels and stuff. And I was always impressed by Gordon Brown. Yeah. You know, he was a very sort of sincere principles-based politician, incredibly analytical, incredibly clever and sharp, really did have a good agenda in terms of what he wanted to do with the welfare state, the tax system. And if you think back to the early days of the Labour government, indeed the first couple of terms, you know, yes, they did have their issues and stuff, but there was a lot of change that was delivered during that time. And I don't think they often... You know, people often forget some of the fundamental reforms that were delivered during that point. However, you know, I think that the the problem was that the leadership of the party, the the fact that he wanted to be prime minister, almost got all-consuming. Yeah, yeah, that whole psychodrama Um, towards the end was not good for anybody. No, exactly. And I think that, you know, when Gordon Brown was at his strongest was when, um, you know, in the earlier days where he did have control of the domestic agenda and did have some very, very exceptional people around him, Mm. like the Eds, Ed Balls and and people like that, Mm. that were, you know, filtering policy, that were really helping him to develop that sort of broad narrative that was really successful. And I think, yeah, it's a shame because it did lose its way a bit towards the end. And I think it was a, a, a combination of that, you know, just looking for that sort of top job and wanting to be, you know, in that position. But also I think that you can almost be in a position for too long. Yep. Yeah. And, and and I think you you can become stale and you can become complacent and always looking at over the fence and all of that type of stuff. So I think, you know, there was a bit of that going on as well. Yeah. Now I can relate to that after 20 years at Hargreaves. <laughs> That's another story. Well, no, exactly. And, and I think in the types of roles that we do, Tom, you know, sort of the public policy, the lobbying, the, um, you know, doing stuff like this, you know, refreshing the narrative, you know, considering things from different angles is actually really healthy and really refreshing. Something else you touched on there was, and it came across in that BBC documentary, was they weren't always good at selling their achievements. And I've just been reading Sebastian Payne's book about the Red Wall and the factors that lost Labour the 2019 general election. And one of the things that comes through in that, one of the things, I mean, there's there's a lot of other stuff there as well, but one of the things that comes through is that post Blair and Brown, Labour were not good at championing the successes that they achieved during the Blair-Brown years. But, you know, they almost felt a bit awkward about this centrist leader who'd been so successful for them. They wanted to tack back to the left, first with Miliband and then much further with Corbyn. And so they were almost in denial about their successes. Exactly, and it's ironic, isn't it? Because probably the most different 
different people will have different views on Tony Blair and the Premiership and all of that. And, you know, I think, you know, my, my reflections on that era are there, there was some really good stuff. There was some stuff that was less good, um, you know, and there's other stuff that will sort of define that era when it probably shouldn't have done. Mm. So you're thinking of Mark War and all of that type of stuff, which is, you know, difficult territory to get into. Mm. But, you know, it's not the legacy that the Labour Party would have wanted to sort of understate it. That distancing has certainly occurred. Uh, you know, has been sort of a dominant feature of Labour politics since the, the Blair Brown era, yeah. which which is a shame if you think about things like, you know, pension reform, tax benefit integration, progressive universalism, yeah. you know, all of some of the big stuff and the big reform programmes that they had in the early days. Yeah, they were a centrist agenda, but they weren't. They weren't overly centrist. You know, it was quite often it was just good pragmatic policy making dealing with issues that the country had, which is probably where the vast majority of people would want our politicians to be. But it was almost like they've sort of chucked the baby out with the bathwater on a lot of this stuff, haven't they? And uh, they've tried to sort of distance themselves for, you know, you can, for understandable reasons, but yeah, not great at championing some of the successes. No, interesting. That great letter from Liam Byrne, 2010. So, you know, sorry, there's no money left. I look back at that now and, you know, I mean, I think he's gone on record as saying that he really regrets leaving that note that we probably thought it was quite funny at the time. Yeah. Um, is, is it just a coincidence you you happened to leave the Treasury in 2010? Yeah, it wasn't me that burnt all the money, Tom, yeah. if that was your implication. <laughs> you know, I, I did a variety of different roles at the Treasury for 13 years and I did economist roles, I did European roles, I did financial services roles and I found my anchor, my career anchor, which was pensions. And I absolutely loved doing the pensions job from doing stuff on the state pension, pensions tax. I remember um, probably one of the first times I met you, actually, Tom, was in the Treasury when um, we were discussing, oh, what was it, the minimum income requirement as an alternative to annuitisation and stuff and drawdown and stuff. And, you know, I was part of the Turner Reform stuff and the creation of Nest and, you know, used to deal with the regulator and the PPF. And, you know, I just loved it. I just love pensions as a, as a topic and as a subject area. <laughs> and I know, I don't tell me about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm great to go to the pub with. And, yeah, everybody everybody and, and, wants to talk to pension experts these days, you know. Well, these days, yeah. It's, we've been, um, you know, we've if, been rehabilitated, Darren. We have, we have. Um, because, you know, people, people see value in what we do now, Tom, yeah. which I never thought would happen a few years ago. But anyway, I wanted to stay in pensions. I found a subject area that I was really passionate about. You know, it's technically complicated. It's big political stuff. It really is an area that really affects people's lives. And it's big money. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at that as a sort of set of policy issues, there's not many policy issues that sort of touch all of those bases. Yeah. Like social care is another obvious one. But, you know, and, and there's some others. But but actually, it was it was just the right subject area for me. You know, that's swooping and soaring, you know, soaring in terms of pension strategy, pensions narrative, but, you know, swooping down into the detail which sort of governs our pension system is is just me. It's just what I enjoy doing. To be totally honest with you, you know, I was looking to stay in pensions. I was hoping that I might be able to get to DWP or the regulator. Right. You know, that was sort of a next sort of natural phase for me at the time. Although, you know, civil service, because of austerity and all of that, was in a recruitment freeze. So it wasn't a good time to be looking around. And then, you know, it just so happened that, as it was back then, the National Association of Pension Funds were looking for a director of policy to replace Nigel People, who had actually just moved to the regulator, ironically enough. It allowed me to 
stay in pensions, but also to for, for me to develop my career as well. You know, as a civil servant, yeah, it's great fun. There's a lot of influence that you can have and, you know, there's some great times that you can have and difficult times as well. But you're always sort of, you know, a few rows back. You're never sort of front and centre. And, you know, you can do lots of advice and all of that type of stuff. But... You know, you're never you're never out there, you know, doing the stuff that we we both do now. And and one of the things I felt that I needed to do to develop as an individual was actually put a bit more pressure on myself to become a bit more extroverted Mm. and to be a bit more, you know, out there. And, you know, if if I go back sort of 12, 15 years ago, you know, sitting in front of very senior government ministers and stuff talking about, you know, the future of policy, you know, didn't phase me at all. Yeah. Yeah. Doing something like this would have scared the living what's it's out of me. And, you know, standing up in front of a crowd would have scared the living what's it's out of me. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do, you know, to move from the civil service to the NAPF as it was at the time, was to develop some of those skills as well and to almost force myself to sort of come out of the shadows. Yeah, it's really good. You've got, you got definitely got to step out of the comfort zone from time to time and disrupt yourself, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, as you know, I, I sort of made a brief partial foray into the public sector with the, the review I did of MAPS, which, I mean, I wasn't mm. actually a public sector employee, but I was working very much inside the DWP, and I was struck by the difference. And I guess most people in, in the financial services sector haven't worked in the public sector. The vast majority of people working for financial services companies have have only ever worked in the private sector um, and haven't seen what you saw, particularly with 13 years at the Treasury. I mean, and I only had a very brief, you know, stuck my head around the door and left again kind of thing. It was fun to do that, sort of, so to speak. The public sector, certainly the DWP, they've got a process for everything right (laughs) it's just really funny the layers of experience and knowledge they've built up which can be really good because there's always somebody who knows how something works right there's always somebody who knows you know this is how we do this thing but that can create inertia at times as well and that tension between you know stability and disruption you know i think probably the civil service at times errs a little bit too much towards the stability and not enough kind of dynamism is that is is that fair i think so i think um it's it's a huge organization isn't it i think it i think it depends yeah and i think it depends on the area and stuff and it partly depends on the political masters and the ministers and i think that you know yes you wouldn't necessarily call the civil service the most agile or innovative organization you know um, ever out there if you'll forgive me for mentioning Peppa Pig, but that was probably one of the points that the Prime Minister was trying to make during his recent speech, that you wouldn't get the civil service delivering Peppa Pig, whereas you might get that from private sector innovation. But obviously that got lost in some of the wider headlines. Yeah, I think you're right that there is a process for a lot of stuff. There's a way of doing things. There's there's almost sometimes a defence of the status quo. Yeah, i.e. someone did some legislation 20 years ago and it was the right legislation then. And and that almost becomes gospel, whereas actually things need to change with the times. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, being a bit more forward thinking, being a bit more innovative is obviously quite important. And I think you do see that in pockets. You do see that in pockets. And and, and one of the things is it can be quite variable. But the one thing I do love about the civil service and do love about the DWP in particular, actually, is that they are trying to do the right thing. You know, yeah. it's like a calling there. Yeah, yeah, um, and sure. they want to do the best for their minister. They want to give good quality advice. And actually, they really care about outcomes and they really care about sort of the ordinary sort of man and woman on the street, the saver. 
you know, and, and that is a really sort of strong anchor for people, especially who work in DWP. And I've always had the sort of utmost respect for them because of that. doesn't mean to say they get everything right. And I think sometimes they need to sort of understand the way things actually work in practice, mm. you know, and I, I'd be the first to put my hands up. When I was a civil servant, you know, I didn't always understand, you know, the industry impacts and, you know, the regulatory burden side of things and all of that. It's like, oh, you know, why can't this insurance company just do this? It can't be that difficult to do. Well, in isolation, it might not be. But when you're looking at the whole picture of what's going on, the aggregate regulatory burden, the aggregate pace of change and all of that, then, you know, that can actually cause companies and providers quite a lot of headaches. So, you know, the, the, the one thing I would certainly change is getting a bit more industry experience and having a bit more cross-conversation, cross-fertilisation between the civil service and industry. So, hang on, which, are, you, are you saying lobbying is a good thing? I think lobbying is a good thing. Why isn't lobbying a good thing? I think, um, you know, representing... I, and I, done think, in the right I think lobbying way, is a good thing. It's all right, I'm fine. Um, done in the right way and done in a transparent way yeah. and, and actually sort of educating people and talking through issues... I think it's great. I think sometimes lobbying gets a bit of a... It, it gets sort of tied up in sort of more in a, inappropriate influencing, whereby people get paid consultancy contracts and all of that type of stuff. And, you know, and, that, and, and, and that, to me, isn't lobbying. You know, that's bribery, basically. Yeah. But good engagement Whereas, with the private sector, good interaction and feedback and insight is all really important, isn't it? I think it's necessary. And I think the best policies that government makes are when they consult in a sort of an open and collaborative way with the private sector and have the debates and have the discussions and really understand the trade-offs. I think, you know, when consultations just come across as a tick box exercise, that's when we don't get good policy. And, you know, there's probably a reason for that. And to your, to your earlier point, it's also important to, to keep in mind, you know what I mean by Chesterton's fence? Oh, I don't actually. Go on, explain. Right. To Chesterton's fence. G.K. Chesterton <laughs> came up with this kind of concept that you should never take down a fence... Unless, I mean, he obviously puts it much more articulately than I am now, but a base principle is if you come across a fence and you think, well, we don't need that fence set, let's just get rid of it. Don't take down the fence until you first found out why it was put there in the first place. Yeah, right. yeah. And once you understood, understand why the fence was put there in the first place, then you can make an informed decision about whether we still need the fence there or not. And I think yeah, yeah. That, that caution and that, that precautionary principle of, you know, understand the consequences of what you're doing before you act and, and disrupt things is really important. And I think generally the civil service is pretty good at that kind of thing. I think so, yeah, I, I think so. As I say, they're, they're there to do the best for their ministers. They're there to sort of think things through. You know, they are there to explain the pros and the cons, mm. you know, to ministers. Um, ultimately, it's ministerial decisions. And I think that, you know, as long as the civil servants understand the issues and are presenting a fair reflection of the pros and cons of different options and stuff, mm. then, you know, that's what they're there to do. And, and, that, and that's why they are politically neutral. Yeah, and, and generally pretty good at that. So now here you are at Smart Pensions. So a lot of people will know Smart Pensions. For anyone that doesn't know Smart Pensions, give, give us a quick overview. We opened our doors for business, so we were launched in 2015 to provide auto-enrolment pensions for small employers. And, you know, through a, through a pair of pensions master trust arrangement, we've grown quite rapidly since. So we now provide pensions to something like 70 odd thousand employers. Mm. We've got over 2 billion of assets under management and around 800,000 members. Pretty sort of racy growth in quite a short space of time. Mm. We're a fintech, so we basically have a twin track strategy. So part of the focus is on the master trust and just providing sort of good quality workplace pensions 
building on the foundation of auto enrollment, but going wider than that through the Master Trust. But also, you know, one of our key USPs, if I can sort of phrase it that way, is around our tech and our tech stack. The, ultimately, we've got a blank sheet of paper. And what we did is we've sort of spent the years building a pension system, a new pensions admin system from scratch. And, you know, it's still being developed, but ultimately it's not legacy mainframe type stuff. It is very open architecture, you know, heavy use of APIs and all of that type of stuff, which means it's a very communicative system and is one that can be built on and sort of operates in real time. So, you know, some of the stuff that we are doing at the moment is, you know, how we can roll that technology out more widely. And, you know, we're incorporated in the US and we provide the pensions platform for New Ireland Assurance in the Republic of Ireland. We're active in Dubai. So there's a real need for that sort of pensions technology. It isn't always the whizzy stuff, Tom. You know, it's not always the whizzy tools and calculators and the, the real sort of forefront of innovation that is the really important thing here, although that's good stuff from a member's perspective. Actually, there's something about the core system and how it's constructed that can deal with volume and can make sure things are right. As you all know um, from your time in the industry, you know, one of the things that the pensions industry struggles with is technology and yep. the lack of investment in the sort of tech stack over time. And the technical debt that builds up as people implement bodge solutions and exactly. And, yeah. and, and then, you know, it means that forever afterwards when you want to, to change something, you've got to, you know, double your workload and you've got to make manual interventions and everything starts to slow down. And that's just such a classic problem for established pension providers. And yep. there's just this constant renewal. I mean, like I joined Hargreaves when it was still relatively new and it did all its tech in-house and it was the agile challenger sort of challenging the the, the big established insurance companies with their slow systems. Yep. And, and now it's kind of turned into a bit the same and along come smart pensions in 2015 and it's new and it's agile and it's fast growing and, and so it goes. So I guess, yeah. I guess the challenge for you guys is to, to maintain that agility and to not get bogged down as you grow. So are you transferring in any books of business from elsewhere? You know, there's a, there's a lot going on in the pensions industry at the moment, as you know, and one of the sort of the key themes is consolidation. We see our proposition and our platform as, as something that is good to consolidate onto. You know, whether that's individuals doing so or, you know, whether it's people looking to, you know, consolidate deferred member schemes and all of that type of stuff. We do see quite a lot of that. Obviously, one of the big challenges there is data, yep, data, data quality. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a, a sort of a number of sort of stage processes that you go through when you look at this type of stuff. Obviously, there's a there's a lot more focus on data now, and correctly so, because of things like dashboard and small pots and all of that type of stuff. But I think that, you know, in a way, the regulator is, is quite pragmatic on stuff when it comes to data, and it would rather stuff be in a more modern scheme, mm. on a better platform, you know, with good governance within an authorised master trust environment with a plan to sort the data out. Do you gather your members' personal email addresses? We try to. So we certainly think that, you know, personal information, i.e. email addresses, personal email addresses and mobile phone numbers are the most important things to have. Yeah. That one of the problems with what you have with auto-enrolment and data quality on auto-enrolment is it's the employer that provides the information. Yeah. And the employer doesn't have to, it isn't necessarily always required to give you the information that would be most useful. Mm. Yeah. 
So while they might give you an email address, quite often it'll be a work email address. Fine up until someone leaves that job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, we do a lot of work to try and sort of nudge people, to encourage people to, you know, give us that personal information and also to activate their account because, you know, once once they've engaged, even if it's like just a small engagement to activate their online account and, you know, nominate beneficiaries or, let's say, just giving us your personal email address, it makes stuff so much easier later on. But it's pensions, isn't it, Tom? You know, yeah. um, yeah. trying to encourage someone to um, you know, download an app or log on to their online account is a pretty challenging thing to do. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's something that the industry has been grappling with for a long, long time. And, you know, the more I think about this, and I think others are in a similar position as well, is that you're never going to crack this just by sort of focusing narrowly on pensions. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, you know, people are engaged, people people are interested in stuff, people, you know, are interested in money and budgeting and planning and all of that type of stuff. And, you know, trying to pull people over to a pensions environment is always going to be a difficult sell, yeah, for all the reasons that we know. But actually, if it's difficult to get people over to pensions, well, surely the pensions industry now needs to start thinking about how it can get to the places where people are already having some of these conversations and are already interacting. And, and, and I think that's where the industry needs to sort of focus some of its attention in the longer term. So do you think there's a, a kind of Trojan horse that the pensions industry can use to insert the pensions engagement tool into people's banking apps or, or, or whatever, or, or something yeah. that sits alongside the pensions? You know, or... Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a Trojan horse, but I think it's just basically going to places where conversations are already happening. Right. There, there are examples in Scottish Widows and Lloyds because they're part of the same company. Mm. If you have a bank account and a pension with the same company, then you know you get your pension information on, and your current account information together, which mm. is which has got to be a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I bet people check sort of check their current account information probably a lot more than they do their pension, and that's what I mean by this. And and I think the the dashboard is something that we have been all been talking about for goodness knows how long, is potentially, and I underline and bold the word potentially, a sort of a good stepping stone on the way to this. Because I think on the dashboard, we often get hung up about single dashboards, multiple dashboards, and what can be done and what can't be done and all of that. Right. But, you know, it, for, for, for me, they're, they're, they're phase one discussions. Right. Yeah, because actually the phase two discussion around the dashboard is actually it's the way to open pensions. Yeah. And when you get to open pensions, that's where ultimately you can use things like aggregator apps or you can have APIs within your bank account or whatever to link into your pension. And it's that sort of integrated holistic finance approach, which I think will have the best chance of moving the dial when it comes to you know, pensions engagement. Do you think the data and quality will be good enough to do that, particularly on some of the legacy have, business? I, I think there, there are challenges on that. And it's not going to be perfect overnight. I think that the regulators in particular are going to be looking at providers' performance when it comes to dashboard. And I think that, you know, most people are going to take quite a risk-averse approach, I would imagine, that actually if you sort of have false positives, so that's like giving someone's data to someone you shouldn't, you know, that will be catastrophic. That's not a good thing. But also you you need to sort of balance that up against um, managing false negatives. Initially, at least, we're going to be piling on the false negatives as an industry because of that risk-averse nature. And part of that is just compliance. And part 
parts of that will be around data quality. But I think that will also shine a light on, hold on a minute, why are you getting so many false negatives? What's the reason? Yeah, are you being too risk averse or actually do you have a data issue? And we move the, the data issue from a conversation of, so if you look at TPR's common data standards and the like at the moment, mm. I think I'm right in saying is that, you know, you get a point or whatever or a tick if you've got something in the first name, yeah, or something in the surname. So it's like whether data's there, it's not about the quality of data. Now, I don't, you know, Phil, it's not, it's not a ridiculously complicated name, but, you know, sometimes that gets put in as the first name. Quite often it's Phelps, Phillips, Philip, yeah. you know, yeah. there's lots of different combinations of, of it. It doesn't ma- really matter what the spelling of the surname would be within the system. If you've got something in there, you've got good data quality. Well, I think we need to move the, mm. the debate away from just data presence <laughs> to actually, is it right? Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, one of, some of the things that we should be considering as well, and I know this is sort of, potentially politically quite tricky and stuff but there are databases of stuff out there that can verify id you know just think about um hmrc for example you know they put they pretty much know who everyone actually is where's the sort of public private partnership in terms of you know improving sort of data quality across the piece on some of this stuff I don't know what the answer would be, but surely it's in society's interest across the piece that we have good quality data. Do you think we should just like capitulate like Facebook, Amazon, Google? They already know more about us than our, our, our own partners do. So let's just let's just embrace that. We've got the NHS app, you know, we've got we've got, like you say, HMRC. Let's use that big data to just join all the dots. Is, is that where we go with this? Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, it's a big question, and I think it's one of those ones where it's difficult to say yes or no, because I think there's some work to do uh, <laughs> before you can sort of um, you know get to that point. But it's a discussion. Might be dragging the Overton window a little bit to the right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think there's a discussion that needs to be had on yeah. some of this stuff. I know governments have sort of tried some of this before. Well, Blair tried ID cards and got shot down for it, didn't he? Yeah, amazing. He did. But then you've got the current government legislating for ID to be present as part of elections and stuff. You know, Um, it's it's a very disjointed narrative. And and actually, I think, you know, there's something around what is the societal data strategy? So rather than actually sort of looking at this in a piecemeal way across different sectors, across different bits of society, you know, there is probably a commission or a review that needs to happen, which is, okay, you know, how how can this be done within a way, if at all, that protects people's privacy, but also gives, um, you know, good data and keeps people in control. But we're not having that macro discussion. So what we end up trying to do is then try and deal with problems in a really piecemeal way, which just means we, you know, at best keep reinventing the wheel. You know, at worst, we're, we're not coming up with very good solutions on things. So the other bit of that, I mean, I think you're making a really interesting point there, and it triggered in my mind the association with re- regulation of social media and mm. the power that some of those big platforms currently have to determine what is and is not acceptable news and information. And, you know, should they hold the power? Should it be held in the hands of the private organisations? Or should it be the big authoritarian government? You know, we've seen what the the People's Republic of China have done with with their internet. You know, (laughs) you can go down the autocratic route, government's in control, that's it. You know, we will produce model citizens and that's that. And not everybody's comfortable with that. Equally, you know, you can have Mark Zuckerberg in charge and he can control um, and, you know, some 22-year-old ponytail-wearing Silicon Valley employee gets to decide the moral parameters of what news you can consume. 
and not everyone's comfortable with that either. And so that feels like a conversation that's not really being had yet. And it feels like that sits quite closely to what you were talking about in terms of how we manage and use the data that is available to us. I think this is all related, isn't it? Because quite often, especially when it comes to big data type stuff and social media, well, it's run on big data because ultimately they're adverts that you get, they're the stuff that you see the algorithms that prioritise what's in your timeline and stuff are all based on, you know, your either revealed or unrevealed preferences. You know, so so this stuff's happening anyway. I I think the two issues are are separate, yeah, in the sense of you can, it's worth having a a, a conversation about data and data strategy and all of that type of stuff. And I think once you get into regulation of social media, regulation of the news, it it is, you're totally right, it is related. There are similar issues, but it's actually a separate conversation. But, you know, but yeah, these are some of the big questions that, you know, our society faces. And it's stuff that, you know, are going to have to be grappled with sooner or later. Uh, I was never a fan of Mr Trump and some of his random tweets. I have to say I enjoyed some of them at times. But but is it right that a social media platform, you know, is censoring an elected politician? It's a a tricky balancing act, and I don't know what the answer is, but but there are answers that need need to be addressed. So, you know, bringing it back for a moment more towards the pensions and financial mm. services side of things. Thank you, yeah. You know, what about, <laughs> I was what conscious about... we'd straight off piste a bit there. Yeah, go on. No, no, it was no, interesting, no, no, though. Just, See, normally we have these of, conversations the, with beer the, involved, but it's well, I was just it's, about to say, yeah, it's, 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 you know, we, we haven't done that for a while, but yeah. It is um, only 10 o'clock. So I'm just the imagining the conversation. I oh, know, I know. Uh, I, I suppose this conversation could get more random if we did have a beer in our hand. But, but just um, on the, on, on, you know, on the social media stuff, like, you, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of scams unfortunately within the industry there's a lot of false advertising and all of that type of stuff not from regulated companies and that but but from elsewhere obviously we've got the online harms bill and 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 stuff going through and you know these are all issues that are totally entwined you know how can we protect people from pension scams within the pensions industry when you know regulators have Let's be let's be honest. Very little power to police what's going on, you know, on the social media side of things. And you know, if people are going there to get access to information and stuff, or if they're just getting pushed that information when they happen to be in that environment, that is really challenging to regulate, and it's really challenging to counter as well. Yep. So you, you mentioned earlier that you did your review on maps, but a lot of potential within that organisation. It's got the opportunity to, to do some good things, but the problem is, is you know, how does it reach its audience? How do providers reach their audience? Like we're all subject to, you know, legal advisors and compliance and all of that type of stuff, you know. Whereas you know the scammers, yeah, they don't have any of that to worry about, and you know that's why they can, you know, make their ads and their offers um, slightly more enticing and the like and, um, and and suck people in and you know these are some of the big big questions that we've got from a sort of an advertising and regulatory point of view because we're, we're not in control as an industry of the information that people get yeah. and that's quite dangerous especially when you know the, the regulators don't have the power to intervene or to police this stuff effectively right unverified fact alert so i heard a stat the other day that just kind of a bit like uh, apparently Facebook shuts down every quarter, it closes down like fake accounts, right? People, you know, troll farms and like are setting up fake accounts, right? Every quarter they shut down two billion of them. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's just like, well, my brain just exploded. It's like, that's a lot, isn't it? How can you trust anything out there? 
And uh, in the same piece, I heard that you know they they used the example of Christian websites in America, sites where people could go along, you know, particular faith could just share information and thoughts and ideas and connect and so on. So Facebook groups, the top fifteen Christian Facebook groups on on Facebook, apparently were all fake, right? So there were real people joining them, but they'd been set up by someone who was not a Christian and had a particular agenda and created them in the first place. It's like, well, this is quite scary isn't it it is scary yeah. yeah it is scary but it shows the sort of nature of the communications challenge that we're all facing you know we've gone way way off topic just come back to the master trust because there was something i wanted to ask you about that is how many are we going to end up with in the end when the music stops and everything settles down and businesses have got nice sustainable robust platforms and it, it feels like we've gone through the initial mill race and we're yep. kind of starting to get towards the calmer waters on the other side after as the auto enrollment rush starts to calm down but we're still not there yet and businesses are still kind of you know and we've gone through the regulation piece which was a big disruptor there so sure. so what what does the steady state master trust sector look like on the other side it's a really good question and it's one where you, you can't give an answer of just a number because not all master trusts are the same or they're serving a particular market for a particular reason. I would reframe your question, which I think is about sort of mass market auto-enrollment master trusts. Because yeah. I think that's where you really need the scale and you really need the market presence to drive good value and efficiency. You still need scale in, in other master trusts, but ultimately they might be more niche. Yeah. So, you you know, let, let's let's just take USS, for example. USS mm. has got a master trust as a DC top up. It's a multi-employer scheme. It's a master trust. But, you know, it's on the back of the of, of the moment of a, a DB scheme. Mm. Yeah. Now, that master trust is quite often sort of bundled into the general stats and figures on the number of master trusts. Right. You know, I don't think it's the same as a Nest yeah, or a People's yeah. or a Now or a Smart. So I, I think, um, you know, you're probably looking at around or probably below 10 mass market AE master trusts, but probably around sort of 25 in total, if that sort of makes sense. I think you need need some choice, yeah? And I think choice sort of inspires innovation. And, you know, it is important to have that sort of competitive dynamic. And I think one of the good things that we've had through pensions reform is the fact that, you know, there has been new entrants into the market, you know, so my old place, People's Pension, you know, came into the market and made a great success of the early days of auto enrolment, you know, which was which was absolutely fantastic. You know, going head to head with Nest and the traditional insurers, you know, with a slightly different proposition from the rest of the market. And, you know, they are where they are now. Again, Smart came in to really sort of automate and make auto enrolment for SMEs really efficient and really work and almost be a competitor to Nest in that market. And that's good because it keeps Nest honest mm-hmm. and, you know, it provides that competition and space for innovation. You, you know, you need to have a certain number of players. But, yeah, you also need um, to, you know, to drive scale as well. And I think, you know, we saw the number of master trusts broadly half with authorization. Yeah. And, you know, you're seeing sort of various consolidations at the moment. The pace has slowed a bit. But I think, you know, you'll continue to see them. But it'll be a longer burn. I think where the action really is on consolidation at the moment is single employer trusts. Yeah. And um, consolidating single employer trusts into 
into master trusts. And this isn't just a sort of market dynamic thing that's happening. This is almost like a direct result of government and regulatory policy, whereby they've built an authorization regime. They've got a lot of control and supervisory powers over master trusts and the master trust sector. They can't do that on the single employer trust side of things, although, you know, there's some risks there on that side of things. And, and actually, you know, their regulatory approaches, actually, we just want to manage fewer, larger schemes. You see um, the same from the FCA, need... you know, life is a lot simpler if you've only got a handful of big organisations to regulate. No, exactly, yeah. And I, and I think that's been a, a regulatory drive. Yeah. There was some interesting, I think we were both on a, a session the other day, actually, about value for money. Yeah. And there were some interesting experiences, a PPI session, Pensions Policy mm-hmm. Institute session, and um, they were talking about sort of scale economies and the like. And, you know, yeah, you do get scale economies. But, but the top's you know, had about 500 million, wasn't it? About 500 million, yeah, which, you know, um, given where some of the current government thinking is in terms of forcing schemes to consolidate, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting number, you know, because, that, you know, that was I think that was examples from the Netherlands, which was sort of saying, well, once you start getting a above 500 million, you, you could start even getting diseconomies of scale. It's not that the, the economies of scale sort of tail off. Because the investment um, because strategies you, start getting more complicated, yeah. Yeah, and you try to do more, yeah. And, and you know, and, and that doing more might be good if it's delivering value for members, but it doesn't always do deliver value for members, does it? So, you know, you know, I, I've always thought that, you know, if you're going to offer a pension scheme, and I think, that, you know, the, the trust sector is not an odd one because it, it, it had been neglected for years in a way. But I think it comes down to this. Look, if, you, if you're going to run a pension scheme, whether it's a master trust for a provider or a, a single employer trust, you've got to do it properly. You've got to have the right governance in place. You've got to invest in the proposition. Yeah, we've moved beyond the cottage in the industry governance. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and I don't think it's whether it's master trust or single employer trust. I don't think it's always whether it's large or small. Although, you know, there are economies of scale arguments. You can get very well-run small schemes, yeah? Mm. The condition for that to happen is that the employer resources it properly, yeah? yeah? That isn't very likely to happen. Yeah, it does happen, but actually, you know, it doesn't happen as much as it needs to happen. And therefore, that's why you've got the consolidation agenda. It's much more of a sophisticated argument at, at times rather than just, a, oh, if you're a scheme that is above or below a certain number, then you're good or bad or whatever. And also, I think we've got to be careful in terms of the reasons for consolidation, because I think the driving consolidation to increase standards, to, to improve governance, to deliver better value for members, absolutely spot on. Yeah. And, you know, if, if scale can deliver that and government policy can deliver that, then that's the right thing to do. And as we heard on the um, PPI event, you know, good governance cut, you know, improves returns, right? It does. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, and it manages risk. Yeah. And, and because, you know, people, st- you know, this isn't a sort of um, a short term bank account. This is sort of someone's savings over, you know, an extended period of years. And, you know, having sort of the governance and the security and the controls around that is really, really important. Mm. But, you know, but as the PPI event showed, you, you get to a point where actually you've probably topped out on some of that. So then why would politicians want to go higher? Well, it might be for other reasons. If you've got a bigger scheme, then you're more likely to be able to invest in liquid assets, for example, or, or whatever it might be. 
So that might give, deliver you a different reason for consolidation yeah. that may or may not be in the members' interests. In members' best interests, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I think we just always need to be careful when talking about consolidation and the race for consolidation and the speed consolidation to really think through why. What are the motivations to do this? You know, the thing I really love, you know, um, I've, I've, I've moaned about trustees. I think we all probably have at some point, you know, sometimes being a bit, you know, slow, yeah. bit, bit, you know, maybe lacking innovation, innovation, maybe sort of being a bit risk averse or whatever, you know. But the good thing about the trustee model is, you know, that fiduciary duty, which is, OK, you've got a bunch of people there that, you know, on the whole will only want to do stuff if it's the right thing to do for their members. Yep. You know, and I think that, you know, we would all love pension schemes to, you know, help promote the UK economy and uh, be part of Build Back Better and, uh, you know, generate higher returns through liquid investments and stuff. But I think what the politicians need to realise is that, you know, pension funds and pension schemes are here first and foremost for their members. So, you know, if it doesn't pass the member test, then it's not really going to happen in the way that politicians want it to happen. I remember having several fun conversations with Greg McClymont uh, when he was the, the Labour shadow pensions man about the relative merits of trust-based pensions versus contract-based. Obviously, as a, as a good, good Labour man, he was very much in favour of the trust-based approach. And as a Hargreaves Lansdowne employee, I was trying to persuade him that shareholder interests were not necessarily... Um, in conflict with the savers' interests. But I can see his view better now, actually, that I don't work in Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is interesting. Greg, by the way, did you know he was the House of Commons pool champion? Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, he was a pretty handy pool player, it turns out. Um, I mean, he's a good player as well.